Hey, it's Craig. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to Canadian History X early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Greetings and welcome to another episode of Canadian History X. If you like, you can support the podcast for as little as $3 a month. Just go to patreon.com slash CanadaEHX. First, on every single tier, you get completely ad-free episodes. And you get a say in what topics I cover on my podcasts. You can also donate to the podcast by going to CanadaEHX.com and clicking donate. Or you can go to buymeacupofcoffee slash CraigU. All of these links are also in my show notes. And for people who donate, I have various levels of benefits. For $5, you get a thank you at the start of the next episode of Canadian History X, Canada's Great War, and from John to Justin, and on social media. For $10, you get everything from the $5, plus this episode is sponsored by, with your name at the start. Also, I'll state it's sponsored by you on social media. For $20, everything from the $5 and $10, plus a second episode sponsored by you, and promotion of something you're working on. And for $50, everything from the $5, $10, and $20 plus, you get to choose a topic for me to cover on Canadian History X. If you like, you can email me at craig at canadaehx.com. You can find me on Twitter. My handle is Craig Baird, C-R-A-I-G-B-A-I-R-D. And I'm on Instagram and TikTok where I put up daily videos about Canada's history. Just go to my username, Bairdo37. And you can find weekly videos on Canada's history on my YouTube channel. Just go to youtube.com slash c slash Canadian History X. If you want to find transcripts of every episode I've ever done, you can go to my website, CanadaEHX.com. And there's over 700 posts on Canada's history there. I also want to say thank you to Jonathan D., who left me a wonderful donation. I would like to mention that all Patreon support and all donations this month will be going to the SBCA. I'm going to be doing this in honor of my best pal, Boris, who sadly passed away last week. And I wanted to do something to honor him, and I thought this would be a good choice. The area that is currently home to Lamont was for centuries the land that the indigenous occupied. The primary indigenous groups of the area were the Blackfoot and the Cree, who were often coming into conflict over territory. The area was also the upper reaches of the territory of the Plains Bison, which were an incredibly important animal to the indigenous. Today, Lamont sits on Treaty 6 land. Settlement in the area began in the 1880s, mostly by travelers who were coming from Winnipeg to Edmonton along the Victoria Trail. Eventually, a community was established in 1906, and it would be named for John Henderson Lamont, who was an MLA in Saskatchewan that eventually served as a justice on the Supreme Court of Canada. In 1907, the Edmonton Journal wrote about the community, stating, quote, In a day, Lamont has jumped to fame. This town, with a future situated on the CNR main line, will henceforth be distinguished as the Park City of Central Alberta. A few days ago, this thriving place was known only as one of the lusty towns that had sprung up on the CNR. Today, the placing in the Elk Park of a herd of buffalo, the last great herd of American bison to be found on the American continent, end quote. On June 14, 1910, Lamont was incorporated as a village. Nearby to Lamont, there is Elk Island National Park. This park, called an island of conservation, is the eighth smallest national park in Canada, but the largest fully enclosed national park in the country. Within those 194 square kilometers, there is the densest population of hoofed mammals in Canada, including coyote, moose, lynx, beaver, elk, and of course, bison. 
The area of the park has been used by the indigenous for centuries, and over 200 archaeological remains of campsites and stone tool-making sites have been found in the park. After Europeans arrived, the area was used for hunting and timber harvesting until a fire tore through in 1899. At that point, the federal government designated the area as the Cooking Lake Forest Reserve. The trees were now protected, but not the elk, moose, or deer within it. In 1906, five men from the area put forward $5,000 and petitioned the federal government to create an elk sanctuary. Called Elk Park, it was given federal park status in 1913 and became an official national park in 1930. In 1907, the Canadian government brought one of the first and largest remaining purebred bison herds from a herd in Montana. Soon after, nearly 400 bison were shipped to Elk Island and then moved on to Buffalo Park near Wainwright. Not all of the bison made the journey, and about 50 to 70 evaded capture and stayed within the park. These escapees are the ancestors of the 400 purebred plains bison and 300 wood bison that now live within the park. The success of bison in the park has allowed bison to be reintroduced to several places including northeastern Montana, Alaska, and the Russian Federation. I'd like to take a break away from the episode for a second to talk about ExploreNet. I spent most of my life living in rural areas in Canada, and I remember the days of dial-up internet and spotty high-speed service. For the past three years, I have been a customer of ExploreNet, and I can honestly say that it is the best rural internet I have ever had. My job as a podcaster means I spend a lot of time researching online, interviewing people over Zoom, and uploading content. Through it all, ExploreNet has provided me with excellent service. When I'm not working, I enjoy streaming content on several streaming platforms and even doing some online gaming with a friend in Ontario. ExploreNet allows me to do all of that with ease. Right now, they offer up to 50 megabits per second on their new LTE network with unlimited data. Their service has only become faster and better since I first signed on. Today and beyond, ExploreNet is investing in building and upgrading the network at a rapid pace. ExploreNet is rural, and that is their route, and that is their focus. For more information about rural internet options in your area, go to ExploreNet.com or call 1-866-285-2253. In 1951, a replica Pioneer cabin was built to honour the Ukrainian-Canadians who pioneered in the area. The Pioneer home in Elk Island National Park is a one-story rectangular log structure that has been covered over with white plaster. Its hipped roof is covered with thatch and features a centrally located chimney. Ukrainian people came to the area in high numbers during the first few decades of the 20th century, and the homes they built are quite similar to the one that was built in Elk Island Park. The heritage designation of the building states, quote, The Pioneer Home is a very good and attractive example of the traditional form and plan of a Ukrainian homestead. This building also illustrates the settlement patterns of Ukrainians in Western Canada as this region developed at the turn of the century, end quote. The building has remained unchanged since construction and the home has become a landmark in the area. The landscape around it includes aspen, poplar and spruce trees with a view of a stone and lake. Another thing that makes this building historic is that it was the first museum or historic site ever dedicated to Ukrainian immigration in Canada. In 1993, it would be designated as a classified federal heritage building. One can associate the residential school system with tuberculosis and tuberculosis with the residential school system. We had 
indigenous parents, communities, students, church employees, teachers, and individuals who are part of Indian Affairs like Dr. Peter Henderson Bryce, giving their critiques in their own time. People hid when the tuberculosis screening came to their communities because they knew that the result of getting screened was that they, they could be taken away. I believe a lot of people were used, government officials who just thought they were doing the right thing. They were doing what they were told. First Nations, Métis, and Inuit peoples have already told our story. It's now time to tell the other side of the story. We need to take a serious look at the parts of the system from the past that we may be replicating today. I'm Maya Foster Sanchez, and this is the story of a national crime. Coming this fall, follow us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. In the 1910s, as the population of the Lamont area was beginning to increase, churches started to spring up along the landscape. Due to the fact that many of the settlers were of Ukrainian heritage, those churches tended to be Ukrainian. In 1913, one of the first Ukrainian churches was built in the area. The Russo-Orthodox Church of the Transfiguration was built on the site of a Greek Catholic church that had been built in 1913. Before long, the Greek Catholic and Orthodox congregations began to bicker between each other and denounced each other in the area. This led to a dispute over who owned the church, which resulted in the church being closed from 1902 to 1906 as the matter went to court. The dispute was bad enough to tear communities, friends, and families apart. And it would not be until the case was settled after two appeals on December 3, 1907, by the Judicial Committee of the Privy Council in London. It ruled in favor of the Russo-Greek Orthodox congregation, and the Greek Catholics were awarded compensation based on the property value of the property. Eventually, in 1913, on the site of the church, a new church was built. The logs and lumber from the old church was then used to construct the current church, which continues to stand to this day. In 2006, it was made a municipal historic resource. In 1917, the presentation of the Blessed Virgin Mary Ukrainian Catholic Church was built. This wood-framed structure was built with a large onion-shaped dome in the Byzantine tradition. And while the church was built in 1917, the congregation actually existed since 1911, and the cemetery next to the church was first built in 1907. Eventually, the church was built in 1917, and the interior of the church was finished in 1925. In 1939, a fieldstone bell tower was installed at the church. And the church continues to stand to this day, and in 2006 was made a municipal heritage resource. In 1918, the Nativity of the Blessed Virgin Mary Ukrainian Greek Catholic Church was built, featuring a large onion-shaped dome nearby to Lamont. The interior decoration of the church is exquisite, featuring work by Peter Lipinski, who is considered to be one of the foremost church painters and had been hired by the congregation in 1928 to paint the inside of the church. The furnishings within the church were constructed by master carpenter Philip Pollock, and due to its historic nature, the church was made a municipal historic resource in 2006. During the Great Depression, in an effort to help residents in Lamont, the decision was made to construct a new church, and this one would be unlike any other built in the area. A church had been built in Lamont in 1906 to serve the Methodist and Presbyterian congregations. That church lasted for 30 years until it burned down in 1936 and was replaced with the current Lamont United Church. This church was built using stones to ensure it would be safe from fire. The mason for the church was Frank Rupchak, who built the walls from piles of field stones that were hauled into the area by local residents. 
On May 11, 1951, Edward Michael Stelmak was born on a farm near Lamont. The grandson of Ukrainian immigrants, his family chose not to settle in Saskatchewan because they did not like the terrain. As a child, Stelmak could only speak Ukrainian until he began to attend school and learned English. In high school, his yearbook called him the future Prime Minister of Canada. I'm David Makowski, Head of Community and Corporate Relations at the Ukrainian Cultural Heritage Village. Today we're moving the Stelmak family house. Uh, the house was lifted on its, off of its foundation yesterday. The uh, restoration officers have been uh, stabilizing the house for the move. The roof was covered, the windows boarded up, a steel beam lifted uh, the house. The house came down the highway today and is at the, arriving at the Ukrainian village where it will be restored and eventually uh, presented for public viewing. This project was announced last year at Ukrainian Day by the Ukrainian Canadian Congress as part of their uh, celebration of the 120th anniversary of Ukrainian settlement in Canada. The Selmak House is, uh, as with all of our historical buildings that are moved to the Ukrainian village, they have to work very carefully with uh, the movers who actually move the building as well as the local utility companies to remove power lines, to lift the power lines so the building can travel from its original location in East Central Alberta to the Ukrainian village where it will be restored uh, and visitors can see it one day. He would eventually go into politics in 1986 and was elected to the Council of Lamont County and then became the Reeve in 1987. In 1993, he moved into provincial politics and soon began to make a name for himself in the new regime of Ralph Klein. By 1997, he would be serving as the Minister of Agriculture and continued to rise through the party in the coming years, including serving as the Minister of Infrastructure, where he made traffic safety a priority. During his time in the post, fines for traffic offenses skyrocketed, sometimes by as much as 700%. Through his time in cabinet, Stelmak was known for never doing anything flashy or controversial and was known as Steady Eddie. In 2006, Klein resigned as Premier of Alberta and Stelmak ran to assume the leadership of the party. He would finish third on the first ballot, but then the fourth, fifth, and sixth place candidates all endorsed him, putting him in first place on the next ballot. He would then win the leadership of the party and became Premier of Alberta. Over the next five years, he would serve as the Premier of the province, where his administration focused heavily on the oil reserves of the province and rejected calls from environmentalists to slow the pace of the development of the oil sands and to impose carbon taxes. His government also overhauled the health governance system, amended the Alberta Human Rights Code, reintroduced all party committees to the legislature, and reached a major labor agreement with Alberta teachers. He would win the 2008 election, but the global recession would hurt the province and lead to Alberta's first budget deficit in 16 years. On October 7, 2011, he resigned as Premier and was succeeded by Alison Redford. After 25 years in politics, Alberta Premier Ed Stelmack is headed back to his roots. And in a casual interview Friday on his family's homestead near Mundare, the Alberta-born farmer looked steadier than ever. A steady Eddie? <laughs> During the interview, one of his last as Premier, he told the Edmonton Sun he's at peace with his January decision to step down as Tory leader, and he's got high hopes for the future of the province he calls home. I'm feeling very good, um, very positive, leaving the province in good financial position. Uh, accomplished what I set out to do, uh, not only in the leadership, but in the March 2008 election. Without any regrets, his worries lie in the future. He hopes, or as he says, he tries to have faith,
that the province's next leader will build on his vision for Alberta's economy and the trading relationships he has created. We're now competing continent to continent and that to me is extremely, extremely important. Uh, economically, we're we, you know, between 2008 and 2009, uh, we lost about 78,000 jobs. We've not only recovered those jobs, but added another 11,000, so we're at about 89,000 jobs in Alberta. Though facing an uncertain future, he's content in the knowledge that during his term, his party fulfilled its commitments to the public, including the recent lockdown of a 20-year RCMP contract. One of the last uh, commitments that we met, and that was... Uh, during the leadership, I said I uh, would not uh, disband the RCMP, they would remain the provincial police force, and so we signed a 20-year agreement uh, today. So uh, that uh, is one of the last uh, commitments that we met uh, uh, just before the bell rings. Stelmack seemed most at ease while strolling through his grandfather's original two-story homestead. Prompted by his surroundings, he related a story about the origin of his Ukrainian last name. Stelmack is... Uh, uh, meaning steel and maker, maker of steel. So um, many times the, the pioneers would say it's, it's the uh, steel maker that put the steel on the wagon wheel um, and heated it up and then it would compress. But for years, it's another name entirely that's plagued the former well digger. He says he's been called Steady Eddie since his days as president of the students' union in high school. He says it's a good indicator of his nature and an attitude he learned from his dad. You don't, uh, uh, you know, make good decisions by arguing, pointing fingers. I mean, you take a position, you articulate your position, but uh, don't get, to, you know, just take it easy. And uh, uh, certainly had to bite my lip a number of times, but you know, that's politics is all about. But in, in the end of the day, you built uh, uh, consensus and made the right decisions for the province. Delmac plans to take a year off, focus on family and volunteer work. After that, he says, his future is as wide open as the Alberta prairies. Reporting for Sun News, I'm Angelique Rodrigues. One of the darkest days in Alberta's history occurred on November 29, 1960, near Lamont, when a school bus carrying 43 students from the local school were involved in a terrible accident when their bus was hit by a train. The disaster would claim the lives of 16 students, making it the worst road disaster in Alberta's history to that point. The train hit the bus broadside at 8.55 a.m., scattering bodies and debris across the area. The back of the bus was thrown 120 feet away from the railroad crossing. While 16 students were killed, 10 were seriously injured and 16 had minor injuries. The driver of the bus was also seriously injured. The only person to escape any injury was a young man only identified with the last name of Tompkins. Many of the victims were carried on doors and a large heavy tractor was used to pull the bus apart so more children could be accessed in the twisted metal of the disaster scene, where a large group of parents had gathered hoping to hear news about their children. The Edmonton Journal stated, quote, All morning, there was a tragic procession of parents arriving to identify the dead and injured. Many ran from their cars as they arrived and minutes later emerged completely broken. Mounted police set up a guard at the hospital and only relatives were allowed to enter, end quote. RCMP from Lamont, Fort Saskatchewan, and Edmonton all responded to the disaster. Local workers who helped get children out of the bus refused to talk to anyone after dealing with the scene of death and carnage. 
within Lamont, calls flooded the Alberta government telephone's office, and the office refused to accept any more phone calls except for emergency calls due to the lines working at full capacity. A work crew was sent out from Edmonton to set up additional communication lines to deal with the huge influx of phone calls in the area. By the next day, the death toll had risen to 17 children. It's not known how the disaster happened as the driver had driven the route for the past month with no problem, but it was believed the sun was in his eyes preventing him from seeing the train coming. On August 3, 1978, Lamont received a visit from one of the most famous individuals in the world, Queen Elizabeth II. The visit came as the Queen was travelling to Edmonton by train for the Commonwealth Games, and would make a whistle stop in Lamont where she was greeted by four-year-old Scott Walker, who patted the Queen on the back before he was eased away by an RCMP constable. I hope you enjoyed that episode of my look at Lamont, Alberta. If you did, please leave a rating and review. If you like, you can email me at craig at canadaehx.com. You can find me on Twitter. My handle is Craig Baird, C-R-A-I-G-B-A-I-R-D, and I'm on Instagram at Bairdo37. As well, again, if you want to support the podcast, you can for as little as $3 a month. Just go to patreon.com slash canadaehx. And you can donate to the podcast by going to canadaehx.com and clicking donate. And I also want to thank all of my wonderful patrons. And I apologize if I get any names incorrect. Robert Dutt, Tom Lebac, Elizabeth Brookman, Christy S., Martin Strache, Sarah White, Tom McMillan, Mike Sullivan, Wendy Mills, Kalen Pringitz, Michael Matthews, Joanna Parker, Jeff Dahl, Vobbs, Robert Page, Richard T., Colin Johnson, Jeff Hershey, Kyle Murray, Steve Pakin, Matthew Gartheau, Lionel Romaine, Dr. Bob Turner, Randy Hayden, Doug Campbell, Reg W., Deborah Carlson, Francis Halbling, Nick Zinri, Shannon Marshall, Clinton Martinez, Dimitri Chauve, Aaron O'Hara Myers, Robert Dunseith, Todd Casey, Catherine Roy, Luke Guess, J.P. Bear, Jason Hall, Phil Maynard, and Iris Gray. Thanks, and we'll see you again next time.